Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is uh, August 9th. You'll be hearing this on August 10th. Tammy uh, is in a hotel room again. Again. Most of our Zoom experiences over the past two years, or at least the past year, have been like, (laughs) hotel, you know, and then I try and guess, where is this hotel? (laughs) And Jay's like, I'm never going to a hotel again. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, what is a hotel? Why would I... (laughs) You know, hotel <laughs> ever again. You know, I feel like I'm too old for hotels right now. <laughs> Some people have told me like they enjoy staying in hotels. They sleep better in hotels and stuff. I find that crazy. I can't. <laughs> it's like a it's a little bit of a nice vacation sometimes. I feel, but I don't know. It gets it gets tiring to be on the road. I guess. You know, like how when stand-up comedians, uh, all their material becomes about airports because that's their life because they're always <laughs> just traveling from gig to gig. Yeah. And it's, about, it's like, well, here, what about, ho- what's the deal with hotel points, you know? Or like, I don't, <laughs> right. what's the deal with the airplane phone? I feel like we're getting there with, with this because every time the immediate thing that I think of, there's no planning in this section of the show, people. So I just am responding <laughs> to the things that I see on a screen. And it's always like, Tammy, hotel. Let's talk about hotels. So let's not talk about it's hotels. Very boring, yeah. We have a uh, special guest this uh, this week. It's one of me and Tammy's friends, Gia Tolentino. You were probably familiar with Gia's work at The New Yorker and also her book, uh, Trick Mirror. Mm-hmm. And going to be talking about two topics with Gia. The first is about a recent essay that she wrote um, for a website called Hellgate. And then we're going to talk about a series of, I think, really great pieces that she wrote for The New Yorker about abortion. And so we're going to yeah. talk about those two things with Gia here in a second. Um, I don't know, Tammy, like I was like thinking about like um, about like what's been happening in the news recently. And like, I don't know, like, it's just like a weird time because I think that like after months and months of despair about what was happening with the presidency and everything like that, suddenly like two things passed and then everybody's mood flipped and like Biden staffers are like tweeting dark Brandon memes and all this sort of stuff. You know, (laughs) it's just like a weird time right now. Like, do you feel like energized in any sort of way? Like, do you feel a lightning of the of the dark cloud not really okay so you're still like am i supposed to you're still like charlie brown walking (laughs) yeah pretty much i mean i guess it's good we have that ira but i don't know it still has like new oil and gas leases like i don't know how to feel i just i feel very tortured about our society right now yeah, yeah, I don't know. I feel like a certain energizing. You feel better? I okay, say. good. Yeah, because like it seems like they're actually doing stuff in this. Maybe this deadlock with Cinema and um, Mansion is starting to break up a little bit, you know. And I, hope um, that's true. I really hope that's true for many reasons. The first is the good of society, but secondly, on a very selfish level, I think that like when things are down to such minute political functions. Right. Like where it's just like, how do we how do we get a 51 to 50? I'm sorry. Like, how do we get a 51 vote Senate thing? Right. I feel like the conversation about politics becomes completely inaccessible to the vast Mm -hmm. majority of people because the vast majority of people don't actually care about the workings of the Senate. You know. Right. And so that large, large issues like inflation, for example, or climate change actually get processed through something that nobody cares about. Right. And I think that that's kind of like. I think that's politically destabilizing in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. or at least it's bad for the public in terms of our jobs as journalists. 
And yet I don't have a solution to it because it does all come down to the thing that the people are writing about, right? It yeah. does come down to one vote in the Senate. And um, my hope is just that like, you know, if this thing doesn't exist, then some of the conversations will at least be more interesting, whatever side of the, of the topic that you're on, you know, that it will actually be more substantive in a way. But who knows, you know, who knows what lurks in the heart of Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, Kristen Sinema. Um, or Pelosi in China, in Taiwan, which we'll talk about at some point, too. Yeah, that the was world wild. Is a mess. The 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 um, world tracker. Did you, the, the people walking watching it on the airplane tracker and stuff. Oh, that... Like that. that was crazy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was oh like God. a whole thing. I've I've recently found that I'm like somewhat disengaged. Like I don't think the right word is disengaged, but I've become a little bit more. Like I just like the news kind of just happens, you yeah. know, and I don't feel as like plugged into it. And I think it's just because, like, I don't understand. I don't look at Twitter as much. That's good, Jay. And I don't believe you, but no, I really don't. And <laughs> I like never understand what people are talking about when I go on there. And I think that's just a product of being old, you know. Um, how was um? How was Vegas? Uh, it was okay. Yeah, it was fun. I don't that's know. It? Yeah, <laughs> okay. it's like always the same. Yeah. Know? That's what I like about it, actually. I did go to a place recommended by someone in our Discord, which was a combination jajangmyeon, um, jjampong, and Hawaiian barbecue spot. What? That makes no sense. <laughs> yeah. Was it delicious? Yeah, it was pretty good. Well, look, okay, so this menu was crazy. You know, it was called Island Style, and it was in Las Vegas, and they had jjampong for the non-Korean um, listeners to this show. Like there's a style of Korean food that is Korean Chinese food, right? And it centers around like two dishes, three dishes. One of them is this sort of fried pork with this very sweet glaze sauce on it. It's called tang suyuk, right? And then there's also these black bean noodles, which you might, you know, a lot of people might have had, right? Of all the things that people might have had, it would be jajangmyeon, right? This is black noodles. If you can think of it as sort of like a savory and very saucy and like meaty type of dandan noodles. It's kind of similar to that, right? Like you would say. Um, and then there's uh, and then there's jampong, which is like a very specific dish, which I it's like a spicy seafood dish. I personally don't yeah. like it, but like I love a lot it. Of people like it. Okay. And so if you go to these places, of which there's a ton of them in LA and New York, there's even a couple in in here in Oakland. Um, you know, you get this com you can get like the combination, you know. <laughs> yeah, right, whatever. You always get tongue suyuk or whatever. It is an incredibly unhealthy meal. But um it's a specific type of Korean food, and generally you don't find these things except in the specific type of places I've found, right? Like it's hard to find like like jumping in a place that's not just like a yeah. Like uh what what what's the name in Korean? It's like like it's like, uh, what's the name of this type of food? Han Han food or something like that, right? Like, what is this? What is this like Chinese food called? I forget. Yeah, um, I don't know. Like in Korea, you're just like you go to a Chinese restaurant and that's what right, they're... right, right, right. <laughs> <I'm not sure. laughs> um, I love this type of food, but I always feel like I'm gonna have a heart attack after I eat it. Like I'm <laughs> just so like, unhealthy. this is I can't. There's so this. much sodium. It's like, yeah, my heart starts racing when I eat it. Do you know like when you like when you eat something and then in the morning you weigh yourself and like <laughs> I'm like a, a and then you know when you're eating it that if you weigh yourself the next morning you're going to weigh way more than if you ate like literally anything else you and know? your face is twice the size and <laughs> yeah, normally your face is. All <laughs> <up>. <laughs> 
like your feet look weird. Like that's how I am with it. If I if I got if I oh eat a bunch God. of cheddar grits, I literally cannot think of something that makes me feel worse than eating that. And yet, there's nothing that I like to eat more sometimes. You know, I just, love oh this. God, it's so good. Anyway, so this restaurant had jajajmyeon, um, naengmyeon, right? Which oh, for non-Korean people is like cold noodles. Now most that's most, a weird combo. Most Korean restaurants in Las Vegas have naengmyeon because it's so hot. You know, so but like at a Zangman place, that's funny. Right. But then they had this whole Hawaiian barbecue menu. <laughs> <So weird. laughs> yeah. Now, was it the best of all these things that I've had? No. Was it good? Yes. Okay. Was it cool to eat all those things at once? Yes, it was. That's was so random. Cheap? Yeah, it was super cheap. So thank you for that. You know, thank you. For, these are the types of things that you can learn if you become a subscriber to our show. Oh my god, I love this. So yeah, um, I. This is when uh, you passed out at like six o'clock that night. <laughs> no, no, the night before. That was the night before. That oh. was just because I got no sleep the night before. And that gotcha. night we went to a Korean restaurant called Hobok, which is like I think it's like the famous LA or oh, it's okay. the famous oh, Korean barbecue place and. Nice. It's pretty good. It's good. Um. Anyway, that was my trip to Las cool. Vegas, and I don't know. Is there like is there is there a Chajangmyeon place in in the city outside of Queens? I know there's a bunch in Queens. Is there one in in Manhattan? There's this place Hyodonggak that's on thirty four Fifth Street that I used to go to. On thirty Fifth Street, which one yeah. is that? Is that the one like that looks like a wooden Hobbit house or something? Yeah, like yeah, that? it's next to that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah I've been to those places. That, that, I used to go there, but it's been a little bit. It's the only that one. That sounds so good. Maybe I'll try to find some in Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> Me and my friend Andrew K. Um, at some point, um, I don't know if Andrew listens to the show. I hope Andrew doesn't listen to the show. But yeah, Andrew, if you're listening, hello. Andrew's like a sports writer at the New York Times, and he and I used to go to lunch mm-hmm. all the time. And, you know, we both had to travel a lot for work, and we would, we made this, uh, we like sort of had this informal logging of all the Korean restaurants that we had been to around the country. Oh, that's and We were awesome. thinking about making a, a coffee table book called Soul Garden, you know, because every. <laughs> There's one here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. <laughs> or Sheila. <laughs> like, you know, like the most, the, totally. most, the most stereotypical Korean restaurant names, right? Like where it's like, there must be 5,000 Soul Gardens. I, now, I don't think like Soul Garden is as ubiquitous of a name as it used to be, you know, so maybe it doesn't work yeah. anymore. But I will say in the 90s, every Korean oh restaurant in America was called Soul Garden. That's so good. <laughs> and so um, we have been to a lot of them, I would say between them, you know, like from everywhere between like St. Louis to like, I don't know. I've just been to a lot of different The quality's places. gotten a lot better in random towns. Has it? Yeah. Okay. Have you, so Tammy, for those who don't know, or I, I don't know why anyone know, is like in Ohio, right? And they have Korean restaurants where you are right now. Yeah, like I'm in Columbus, so that's not as surprising, but I was in rural right. Ohio and they even had a couple random ones there. Really? Were they good? Yeah. Uh, not great, but like you can right. eat it. Right, right. Yeah, you that's know. an improvement. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The weirdest Korean restaurant I went to was one in were the ones in Mexico City. Oh, in the wow. Sona Rosa district where it's like um I, I went, went to, to one there, there, but it was really yeah. bad. It was the ones in Mexico City were really bad. Yeah. Like kind of like inedible in some sort of way. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, those were the only Shinyang. ones that were really bad. Oh, and I went to one in Manila that was like not great just because Oh, I it thought was, it would be really good in Manila cuz there's so many Koreans there, right? Yeah, 
but it was like super sweet or something. Maybe I went okay. to the wrong place. I don't know. For those who are reading the subtext and all of this, like, you know, the Korean restaurants in these cities are not in the most desirable touristy neighborhoods. And um, I think that sometimes they're fronts for organized crime. You know, I don't want to <laughs> impugn anybody, but certainly that might be true in both the cities we mentioned. And so maybe they're maybe they're just supposed to be bad or something like that. But um, <laughs> I don't know. Manila, the Korean restaurant was not very good that I went to. I think I went to two. I tried two and they were. I really want to go there. Yeah. You've never been to Manila. I've never been to the Philippines. Okay. Well, it's a goal. We're going to start our conversation um, with Gia uh, right now. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I thought this was a very cool conversation that we had, Tammy, you know, and Gia yeah. is somebody whose analysis and thoughts I always want to hear. And so, um, yeah, here's our conversation with Gia Talentia. Okay, so our guest today is Gia Tolentino. We're going to talk about quite a bit, but, um, you know, two topics actually in particular. The first is that the rent is too high, which is something that like I understand intellectually, but I don't really understand how bad it is in New York because I don't live in New York, but I am told by people that I <laughs> talk to in New York that it's really bad. You know, I've heard these like I mostly have like experienced this through watching TikTok, you know, and I don't know if it's real or not, but people like take, have you seen these Gia? Like where like people of take people TikTok. waiting in lines. It's like the sped up time lapse of like 75 people waiting outside of <laughs> like a, base, a basement apartment. Like it's like, it's like right. 75 like white people with iced coffees waiting outside of $5,000, <laughs> you know, garden apartment in Bed-Stuy. Oh Are so those horrible. real? Because I can't tell yeah. if they're like, okay, okay. Cause like, I was like, it's, part of me is like, oh, is this just like a, it almost looks like it's a sneaker drop or something like that. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah. It looks like the like the fuckboy corridor, like near the right. old locker office. Yeah, right. it, it's it's. I mean, listen, I I like I haven't looked for an apartment since last summer. Like, but even last summer, I mean, we were you know identical looking couple number 17 out of 17 identical looking couples like literally begging begging to rent you know a 700 square foot two bedroom garden apartment for forty seven hundred dollars like oh, begging and, that's and what still, it is now oh my god i mean so i mean bad. it's in my neighborhood it's i mean i have to leave my neighborhood but um but fully like two bedrooms in fort green are six grand right now oh my god Six yeah. Oh like, God. like in the, there are all these horrible, you know, I mean, we'll talk about this, but it's like, you know, every, there's plenty of new housing being built, but it's all expensive condos, you know, which is like doing the opposite of solving the problem. And they're all, you know, that stretch of Atlantic Avenue where it used to be like Hotbird and the, you know, the Vanderbilt McDonald's and um, all those. Oh, yes. Smart. I'm very, I'm very, yeah. I'm, ve you, yeah, the, yeah, I'm very familiar I, with I'm the sure you are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and so in the <laughs> place of, in the place of that hotbird, you know, it's just this giant, it's like right across from one of my friend's apartment buildings. And it's just this behemoth, you know, 12 story, you know, giant apartment complex where the windows don't open and everything's renting for, you know, five, $5,000 plus. Like it's just right there on Atlantic. It's, it's a, you know, it's a brutal, it's a brutal, brutal scene. James, yeah. It's, so. All right. We can, so we're going to talk about that. And then we're also <laughs> going to talk about, you know, a series of articles that you wrote for The New Yorker about abortion. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't think that we need to let's just get into the housing part of it, which is that, 
like it seems like right now there is a feeling that things are untenable right and that um there are all these stories like where people are bidding for apartments over ask which is like crazy to me like and i, I did I that and failed <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like where you, people are like uh so i'll pay you listed four thousand dollars a month in rent i'll pay six thousand dollars a month in rent like this is a reality right for a certain yeah. group of people in new york city um and that you know i want to talk about around two two thoughts the first was like around housing activism which is something that you wrote about in this article um which is uh in a website called hellgate right um and we'll link to it in the show notes, which is that, you know, there are a lot of examples right now of housing activism around the country. And, you know, you mentioned Moms for Housing, which is something that happened nearby uh, where I am right now in Oakland, right? You covered Moms for Housing, right, Tammy? Didn't you Tammy write? did, right. Yep. Yeah, for the New Yorker or? New York Review. Right, right, right. Right. And that's like a group that was started by an activist named Carol Fife, who is now one of Oakland City Council people. And they basically just occupied a house. Tammy, you can fill us in a little bit more about it when we talk about it. And um, and then the second thing that I wanted to just talk about was just like what the political feasibility of some of the of the solutions that I think the three of us think are good solutions are, right? And like what the reality of it is and um, what the reality of that some of the people who talk about housing a lot say it is, right? Like we had a guy on a couple of weeks ago named Paul Williams and like, you know, like he is I think he wants all the same things that we do, but he is saying that like it has to at least be branded differently, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Like and yeah. so like these are all conversations that we've had on the show a lot and we're excited to talk to you about it. But um yeah, the the first thing that I want to talk about here is like you wrote a lot about this idea of good cause eviction, right? Like so can you just explain it like what is good cause eviction? I mean, good cause eviction isn't even it, it, to me. It's not even that radical of a you know of legislation at all. So it's it's been it has passed in certain states. I mean, sorry, certain municipalities in upstate New York. Like it's it's been in it's been in Kingston. I think I, I can't remember off. I, sorry, I really should have looked this up before this conversation. But it it was started passing in various places. But it's also been like repealed. Like it passed in Rochester, and then it's like you know, there's all this stuff. It's been contentious, but basically it just gives, it doesn't work like rent control. It just gives tenants a mechanism to formally contest, you know, what we can, what we all kind of consider to be ethically criminal landlord behavior, such as like it would, like anything beyond any rent increases beyond 3% or 1.5 times the rate of inflation. It would not make those illegal, but it would give you a formal mechanism to stop it. And it also, you know, it also says that tenants can't be evicted without misconduct. Like they, they have to have non-payment or they have property destruction or something. And so it's not, you know, it's really not that it's, it's not radical at all. It's, it's doesn't, it's not even rent control. And it was, it was such a, it is so popular every time you pull it, especially in places like New York where, you know, double the population is renting as opposed to owning, you know, compared to the rest of the United States. But, you know, I think it was something like 75% of Republicans yeah, in New York supported like 70, it. Yeah, 79% of Democrats and 50% of Republicans in New York supported this bill, right? Which yeah, is, but then it, it even didn't that even... New York is mostly Democrats, that like that's like by far the most of the, yeah. of the state, yeah. <laughs> But it was killed. It was killed in the right. legislative session. It just didn't right. even. It just didn't even go through. And it's like, it's. I mean, this is one of. I mean, I, I was thinking. I've been thinking a lot lately about how, like, housing is. It is the most obvious, stark, 
I mean, you could maybe make the argument that labor protections could take this spot, but I, it's, it's the most, it's the greatest collective need we have. It is the greatest and most yeah. universalizing and most, you know, inescapable collective need for like justice and security. It's a locus of all of that. And yet to me, it is also, or like in my life, it is also a locus of some of the most severely individualistic desires that I have, you know, and, and I think like, I think that, you know, like I, I desperately want like federal rent control and I want, and I, and I dream of like sort of European style socialized housing, you know, and yet when I think about I like. I also want to live in a beautiful space. Like I, I feel like I, I, I feel so like, anti. Would you would you rather live in like you know like if you're like okay I have to live in Red Vienna you know or I can or I can have this really nice place in, well, in maybe like Scarsdale. Yeah. No, well I don't want the really nice place in Scarsdale, but it's like yeah, I want like, I want an apartment. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just want I want this apartment. Or like a which brownstone has, like, on President Street, you know. I know. I mean, <laughs> the thing is, like the oh, the man. idea of the idea that I could ever like own a brownstone has never you know like but you know I'm not that delusional or individualistic you know like I but I I, I've just been thinking about those axes and the way that they manifest in all sorts of ways that kind of like you know ruthless accelerated capitalism you know manifests itself in our lives where the these things that are just such like maybe you could make a comparison to healthcare or anything else where like it's just this most this incredibly obvious collective need and yet yeah. Like I, I was, I wrote in the article I wrote for Hellgate. It's like, I've had so many conversations about the rent, like all year. Cause this is happening to everyone. One of my friends had his rent raised on him by $1,200. Oh um, and, and you yeah, know, it's someone like, who was like kicked out of their apartment. Like, you know, this is why, what I thought about when I read your article is like, Oh, I just know somebody who makes a quite, you know, a decent amount of money and he got kicked out of his apartment because the rent went up by like 60% or something like that. Oh and then God. you just had to find another type of apartment, you know? And it was just like, I was yeah, because like, there's seems, no cap on right, the private no market. Cap. Especially right? in these new luxury right. apartment buildings where they like have, uh, everyone is paying like some weird differential in, right, in rent because it's just when they come in. You know, those buildings yeah. that have like a recording studio <laughs> in the basement and stuff like that. I lived in one of those in Williamsburg for like seven months. And let me tell you, it was like, it was like kind of cool. Like, I was, just was like, it? This is I know one of my friends yeah, lives in ones that looks like a hotel and it's like, there's like a fountain in the back. Yeah. Like, oh my God. I could get my like groceries delivered and the doorman would just hold them in a refrigerator that was behind the desk. And I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. I know, but it's so sociopathic. Like, like, yeah, these insane. things that are set up with like, um, with like keyless entry that like, that's set up for like all the little, right. all, all the, all your little workers to like stock your fridge yeah. and clean your apartment and right, walk your dog. Right. And it's like, and, and like they, the buildings are contracting with these like surveillance, like, you know, like keyless lock companies. I mean, like I've kind of been wanting to do a story about that, but, um, yeah. but oh I, I think what you're like, one of the things that was interesting in the piece was to me, and I think that this is what we should talk about at the beginning actually, is just like, like there is this, uh, there's like the broader, the way that you framed it, I thought was cool, which is just that, look, there's like this per- individualistic, um, very American idea of like home ownership and, you know, you've made it once you own a home. I felt that way, you know, um, and that all of your personal happiness is tied to the home, right? And that that um, this is not necessarily true in many, many other places, like certainly not yeah. true in Hong Kong. It's not true in Singapore. It's not true in parts of Europe, although it's true in some parts of Europe. But it's definitely not true here in the United States where like, you know, so much of our sense of worth is tied up in like what home we live in 
and that that and seems also so much literal, at odds with this. But I think yeah. also, like I was talking to Cleo Chang about this the other day, um, and it's like, it's not only, I think one of the reasons that is true is like also, I mean, probably like the, it is rooted in some sort of like settler mentality, right? Some sort of claim um, and some sort of, uh, like shutting out, like they're, they're, they're feel, it feels to me like on a kind of structure of feelings level, there's kind of like a shutting out the savages, like, you know, like deeply rooted, um, like American, it, like, like little house on the prairie style. Like there's, there's a really American ideal of sort of like settler housing that I think still feeds into like the way everyone thinks of New York city and everything. But it's also, I think in America, like I, um, in the economic, landscape of america it's not only that it's your kind of metaphorical worth it's your literal worth yeah. right it's right. like the wealth only it's yeah, yeah it's it's like the primary mechanism of wealth accumulation and sort of retirement security right. um totally. and so i think there's a reason that people feel like that because they're not wrong like they're yeah right and you get the mortgage deduction you know there's all this infrastructure socially right. built around it right right, right. Yeah. You, you 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 graduate into the class that gets socialist favor from the government (laughs) yeah because you're rich you're rich people's welfare state yeah yeah yeah, exactly yeah and like here in california you get like completely flat flat taxation where you just like you're like you just lock it in and then oh really yeah like i mean i think like i don't i don't want to out any of my specific neighbors but like people who live (laughs) around me you know they're they're paying like property tax values from 1979 and so like you know they'll live in a house that is worth a lot and they'll pay like based on $275,000 valuation. So they're paying like $600 of property tax a year and their neighbors might be paying $26,000 of property. And that's true. Like across that's, that's true statewide. Yeah. All of California. So so your land, so landlords, but I guess that's one of the reasons that that it's been possible to do things like pass rent control in California because yeah, I mean, I, the this idea that like you know that does seem to be a lot of the political problem with organizing around housing because like I, I agree with you. I just think that you know I wonder this is a crisis. It's one that's felt by a lot of people. It's one that you know is like bipartisan, for lack of a better word. Like uh, like you were saying, like I I know that there's like a housing crisis in Kingston, New York, right? Like now, like, oh hugely, and, yeah. Yeah, that's so that's so weird. Too. I used to go to Woodstock all the time when I was in my early twenties because my friend owned like a house up there that her family had owned. She ran a bit Airbnb or uh, she ran like a bed and breakfast out of it. And so Kingston is like where we go to the see movies, you know, in that mall. Yeah, I've, I've been <laughs> to that like, mall. Yeah. <laughs> I've done my time. Like, <laughs> yeah. like this was way back in the day, so it was like watching like you know like that. I don't know. Remember that movie with Justin Timberlake where he has like time like a clock stamped in his arm and like it keeps running down that's how much time you have to live and then you can like steal it from other people anyway is way you can cut out the no, clocks I from their arms work. and get more time to live yeah or you can like stick a usb the amanda drive movie, i never saw it was it good like no it was terrible, <laughs> terrible. So but bad. it was around that era when Sounds i was like going a really to the movie terrible a match for justin timberlake's general yeah he was so bad <laughs> exactly. like, like justin timberlake really is like a really weird actor i know he doesn't really do it anymore but everyone was like oh he's like this comedic actor but he was like never funny in movies you know uh-huh. he, he always just made this like well you have because you've seen the social network right and so, like, oh, in the social okay. network, like, yeah. he, he, does he, but he, does, he plays himself, right? 
No. No, he plays like Sean Parker in the <laughs> Oh, Well, he's great. Yeah, he's great in that. Everyone's yeah, yeah, great yeah. In that movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but like in yeah. every other movie where he's trying to be like this dramatic actor and action star, he just makes this one face, which I'm not going to even <laughs> attempt to do. I wish he but, would, like, though. His, yeah, my, his, my inscrutable Asian face is not capable of making <laughs> such such contortions. But it's like a fake of it's like a face of like deep concern and like sadness you know it looks like he's like a tennis player who's just like you know he's like at match point and he's about to lose you know, something like that. and that's the only face he ever makes anyway it's wild to me given that like back even you know this was let's say like 2004 to 2010 or something like that like Kingston was like where people from Woodstock would just like be like, oh, yeah, that's where I go to buy liquor or something like that. And now well, like throughout the state, we have all these like uh, New York State, you have all these crises happening in all these different places. It's not just within the city. And so one would think that this would be like the most fertile ground for uh, political activity well, Kingston, in some ways it is yeah Kingston did pass good like Kingston kept um the the pandemic era rent controls and Kingston just passed I like I I forget what the specific measure is but Kingston just passed like a, a like I think one of the best rent control um like and I think upstate I mean I think I mean what I was wanting to what I was thinking about with that piece and what I have been thinking about a lot since, because I spent most of the pandemic upstate um, because I bought a house there in 2018. And mm-hmm. it's like, as such contributed to the housing crisis upstate, you know, those <laughs> um, property values are going up. And like, you know, I know of somebody who's on disability and lives in the town. Um, I'm in Saugerty is like close to Kingston and Woodstock. Right. And like someone on disability renting a one bedroom that's going for $1,800 in downtown Socrates, which is, wow. you know, it's, it's in my own behavior, buying a house there for, you know, $250,000, which is what we, you know, cause I was like, I'll never ever be able to buy property in New York, but I, I could buy this, you know? And, um, and I have been, you know, going up there during the pandemic, you know, it made me really conscious of my place in exacerbating these things. Living in Fort Greene was, you know, makes, you know, makes one quite conscious of, um, you know, like I, I was just thinking about, you know, this thing that seems to be my slash our relationship to every system, which is that we, you know, we exacerbate it. We, we make, we make things worse, even at is, even as it makes itself worse on us, you know? And, yeah. um, and I was just, yeah, but so I think like I think upstate New York actually is going to solve this. Like, is is going to get the wheels turning on this a lot faster than New York City itself. And why why do, why do you think that is? I think it's a lot of I think it's a lot of local backlash against probably weekenders like myself, you right. know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think there is just a lot less, you know, there's just a lot less corporate development money pouring into these these cities the way you know like the 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 landlord lobbying associations that basically blocked good cause eviction in albany you know they they represent i think it was 75 percent of landlords in new york city i mean it's that's just such an enormous amount of of money and power that you know they just they essentially lobbied the bill off the table which is wild well, I was just going to say, like, it, it's. I think it's been a really tumultuous time in terms of tenant rights, because in 2019, we didn't get good cause eviction, but the bill we got for rent stabilization and rent reform was, like, amazing. And I never and then I think it's a backlash against that, that. Right? right? Yeah. And so then we see the backlash against that combined with just, like, the weirdness of the pandemic housing economy. Right. And I was wondering, Gia, like, in what you've seen in the city, in Fort Greene and elsewhere, 
um, in terms of like our friends who are getting 30 to 60% rent increases. Do you think that's all connected to the pandemic housing market or is it a sort of cumulative effect from something that preceded that? I've wondered what it is. Like I, so the people, the couple that moved into my old apartment, which I'd been in for like eight or nine years. Um, also in Fort Greene, right? Also in Fort Greene. I, mm-hmm. I think I told you this, Tammy, they are like, they are 23 years old and they are paying $900 more than what I, we were paying. You know, I mean, it's, it's like, it's the, so. um, I, I've been wondering whether, like, I think certainly it is an effect of sort of pandemic exacerbated inequality where like creative class people who have kind of money to spare are, and, and you know, experience no decline in anything and, and are not dealing with any sort of financial hardship other than inflation or whatever, are like, came back in full force exactly the time that I came back to the city in summer 2021. And I think, and I was thinking it's like, it feels right now like there is just a huge, like New York has always taken an influx of young people from around the country with family money to subsidize an exciting five new, an exciting five years in the city, right? It really feels like that right now. And I, and it, like, I kind of think it's like we're testing the limits of what generational wealth will, will allow for, right? It's like the, the mm-hmm. elasticity in people's, in in what a certain class of people is able to pay for, it seems to me like what else is this coming from, but a kind of like cotton candy padding of, you know, of of family subsidization. I I don't really know what. There were those, there was all that coverage in the times about like people getting pandemic deals and sort of like not doing the buyer beware part of that. Right. And so they got, you know, like a $3,000 apartment for 1500 and now it's suddenly 3000 And Oh, I think and that's I oh, yeah, for how sure. how much of that is in play too. I mean, I, I feel like that's a little bit of like blame but the, the victim. Sure. I think that's hugely in higher than it sure. was. Yeah. I mean, the, I, the average seems much higher than it was even in like 2019, right? Like, yeah, um, the median is, yeah. the median is 4,000. The average is 5,000 in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Just which is like yeah and um yeah you, do, you, do you remember like when you're when we were like very young in media not to you know age any of you but like you know we're all we've all been around for a little we're bit all young, you know? so. and you would go to somebody's house when you're like 24 years old or someone's apartment and they have the same job as you but their apartment is like six times nicer <laughs> than your apartment and then everyone there just kind of like looks at each other when you walk in the door and the person is like handing out like, you know, like they're like, oh, I, you know, like I, I like uh, ma- I maple roasted these walnuts myself, you know, and but everyone else is like looking around at each other, trying to catch each other's eye and be like, how does this apartment exist? You know? Well, and, and the answer, the and answer now, is like, always. The, now the whole, the, the whole city is like that now, like everyone in New York is just like that. Like that's what it feels like to me, right? That um, when I hear about it, it's just like, there's actually nobody who's income matches up with the rent that they're paying um, (laughs) within the creative classes, at least, right? Like that everybody just kind of, it's like the whole city is those people. And so they don't have to have those like weird look arounds, you know? (laughs) Well, but I mean, when you would do that, it's like the answer would always be like, oh, so-and-so's parents bought this place in the eighties and let them live there for free. Right. Right. And it's like, and I think, I mean, the thing that made me so, you know, like I hate that my rent's going up by $625. Like I hate that I have to leave this neighborhood where I feel you know, like I feel really um, enmeshed in this community in in like a yeah. responsible and real and like meaningful way, you know, and like, mm-hmm. and I feel like it takes a while as an adult to get your hands, like to get your sort of sea legs in terms of like what and how your community involvement, like 
how all of that will look and how all of it is sort of sustainable and whatever. But it's, you know, the thing that made me insane, I was like writing about this um, in the piece. It was like, A, I was looking for, um, I was looking for an apartment in 2021 while I was weaning my baby and also like looking for a daycare. And oh it was also God. the heat wave and, and, and like weaning for me, like I, I've been blessed with extremely sunny mental weather, but, but I, I just, I, I, I lost all control of my actions and emotions for two months. Like I, I went like fully, fully insane. Like I, I just yeah. was unable. I was, I was angry all the time. I'm never angry. Like it was just was losing my mind. And I was so angry at myself because it was like, oh you know, we're like, I can, I can gentrify another neighborhood, you know, and I'm, and I'm going to when Ford Green prices me out and, and every, you know, like, which isn't to say this is the situation that everyone in media, the media class or creative class is in far from it. Like I've had this extraordinary professional luck and I can, I can move elsewhere. It'll be fine. But it was like, you know, like Paloma's daycare teachers are, are commuting in an hour and 45 minutes every day. Right. Yeah. Like it's yeah. like, um, the, like the That's nurses right. that, that are at Brooklyn hospital, you know, are getting off the train at six 30, you know, coming in from New Jersey. And yeah. it just made me, you know, it's like, the way that the housing crisis, like I, I, you know, the way that it squashes people is just also so it's, I can't compare what, what my rent raise of $625 is compared to like, you know, like I remember this was also when um, Hurricane Henri or Ida or whatever it was, was happening. And there were those like basement apartments in Queens that were flooding, Oh yeah, you know, and it was just like, um, and, but the thing about it is, like, you know, I, I don't know if y'all read, I think there was a piece in the Times maybe last week where it was like some sort of like Sun Valley, Idaho, like one of those sort of resort towns. It was like the service workers in the town are oh, yeah. are mostly living in cars and sort of. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. like um, cargo containers. Yeah, we don't basically. even have like the the like ski bum economy thing anymore. Like, this right. just like oh, let, live in your car for six months. Yeah, Jackson Hole <laughs> and Ta I mean, Tahoe is absolutely like that because prices in Tahoe have gone up like 200% or something like that since the pandemic, because all of the people who are rich in the Bay area have just yeah. moved up there permanently or have bought second homes, but yeah, or they, or there's this Airbnb problem. So I think like something like, I think South Lake Tahoe, like banned Airbnb for that reason to try mm. and mitigate it a little bit. But, um, I don't know. It's pretty bad. Like, Tammy, I wanted to ask you something about this, because I know that you've done some tenant organizing or you've organized at least the white projects, right? Which is uh, <laughs> like, this is our running joke in the podcast that Tammy listened to white projects. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to organize my building. Like, Andrew and I are about to, yeah. we're about to, we're about to try. I really want to hear about that, <laughs> yeah. Gia, and your um, landlord, too. We've got, Bridget? we've got six of the units out of, out of, um, like, we've got almost a third, so. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're on our way. <laughs> like it, it's like like this would be should be the bedrock of all political organizing at this point within the city, right? Like um, that everybody feels this pinch, right? It's very yeah. easy to like compared to like organizing a work from home workplace, for example, or or something that's more remote. Like all the people you see the people all the time, right? And so you're all in the same building, so you've um, you've really satisfied a lot of like whatever, like even like Jay McAlevey's like you know basic tenets of like organizing right like it's like you don't even need a break room like you know it's the lobby where you get your mail right so like i've been curious it's just like why is this something that organizers are thinking about outside of just tenant organizing that maybe this will be the basic unit now that the workplace it might be a little bit harder right because mm -hmm. people live in such different types of workplaces that in cities like this that this might be the 
the way to go forward? And like, what are the challenges do you think like that might make this difficult? Wait, I also want to ask, what are what did what co-op organizing did you do? Yeah, so um, Gia knows our buildings. Um, uh. So we have this complex of 1,200 units of halls to people who've already heard this on our show before that was built for Navy families like around the time of the war. And um, it's a mix of renters and owners and the renters in, you know, very New York fashion tend to be like older and black. And they're people who were in the complex when it went co-op and decided for whatever reason not to buy in or couldn't buy in and basically stayed rent controlled. And then there's like bougie people who have like moved in as owners, but also working class people. Like it's probably the most mixed race, mixed income, like large housing development in the area, I think. I mean, it's changing very fast. Yeah. It's changing fast, but um, yeah, so we did, we've done a bunch of different things. Like when, like maybe about five years ago, seven years ago, we started doing anti-eviction organizing because there were like the, the corporations that owned the units that rent to the rent control people were starting to kick them out, be very cruel about, you know, violations, late payments, et cetera. Gotcha. So there's a bunch of do-gooders in the complex, like social justice lawyer types who were trying to help them. And would that remove um, them from regulation or would they just use it to get the like vacancy hikes? They were probably trying to get them out. And yeah, actually, I guess it could have stayed in if it stayed in the family, but otherwise. Right. That's have, right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Raised it a bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we did some of that and we, I think we had some success. We were trying to just like monitor what was going on. And then later we also had a campaign to save one of our live-in superintendents from losing his place because mm-hmm. one of the corporations was going to rent that out on, mm-hmm, on the market. Mm-hmm. And then we did a bunch of stuff during the pandemic just around like mutual aid. Cool. Um, so it's like baby tenant organizing, like props to people who are like seriously doing tenant organizing in like in communities that are like very, very hard hit. Ours is like protected because of various things. But I guess the one thing I'll say is like, yeah, I think we talked about this with Mike Davis too. Like, and Gia, you were just raising this. Like what is the kind of note, like the most promising note of social organization in our society right now, you know, as the economy dictates, is it going to be housing or is it going to be the workplace? And of course it should be both and, you know, both at the same time. But I think what I ran into in the baby tenant organizing I did was that there's a lot of shame. And then in that sense, I think it can sometimes look like consumer organizing or debt organizing, which runs into this problem of like, yeah, just feeling like you did something wrong morally Mm-hmm. Whereas I think it's you're right. kind of less likely to feel that or encounter that in the workplace. Right. So like in the housing situation, it might be like, well, X, Y, Z happened that didn't allow me to pay my rent, you know, and you feel like that's on you. Like, so I think like this kind of stuff can sometimes be, I, in, in my experience, it was like a barrier to solidaristic action. And I think also when you have mixed complexes between owners and renters, like obviously there's already a weird power dynamic there. So we encounter that too, but but yeah, I mean, to your point, Jay, like, I think it was, it has been for me, like, really beautiful. And because I was, like, more familiar with worker organizing, I think the tenant organizing was very challenging. Like, yes, these are literally the people who live on top of you and under you. Right. And, like, what are you going to do? Like, what are you willing to sacrifice to lay down your situation for them? And then, to, but then to your point, Gia, like, it's your home, too. And you want the best situation you can for yourself. And so there were lots of arguments with, like, some of the newer people who are not as into solidaristic action who were like, well, these people didn't pay and it's going to mess up our maintenance. It's going to mess up like the savings we have in our corporation, like all this stuff. So right. we had like very uncomfortable conversations that are continuing. To well, you all saw that like yeah. Mark Andreessen letter to his neighbors 
or whatever. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 it? yeah. It was like yeah, they're yeah. opposing, they're opposing like a like a like new development of multifamily. You know, of course, like you know, it's just rich people opposing multifamily because yeah. it'll bring down property values for Mark Andreessen. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, in Atherton, which like, first of all, I don't even know what an, like, I've been to Atherton, and I don't know what an apartment building in there would even look like. I mean, it's crazy there. But like, yeah, he was, he, he, Mark Andreessen was very much like, we have to build housing everywhere, except here. Like, he did the actual (laughs) NIMBY thing. Robert Reich did that in Berkeley, too. And he got yelled at it for it. Yeah, because he like lives on this block, and they were gonna replace this old, like, not even that old, but like, there are a few Victorian ish houses in Berkeley, they're somewhat rare. Um, that look kind of like the houses in San Francisco. And he was, he signed this letter about how you cannot get rid of this house because oh we like God. to look at it. And then you look at the house on Zillow or drive by and you're like, bro, this house is not that special. <laughs> you know, like there are special houses in Berkeley that I do think would be of shame. Like, you know, like Ursula Leggins, is that how you pronounce it? Ursula Le Guin or Le something Guin. like that. Yeah, her, oh, yeah, her that, old, that house, her, is, her old house is amazing and it's yeah. beautiful. You know, it's like, well, you probably shouldn't knock that down, you know? but like this house was nothing special but robert reich signed this letter saying like don't get rid of this house and then all the like yimby dudes in the bay area found it and they're just like torching him you know and then he <laughs> i felt oh, so man, bad for him I I, I I i guarantee what happened is like his neighbor because it was like hey can you sign this thing and he was just like sure whatever you know and he didn't really think about it very much but i don't know that's how most people get canceled anyway <laughs> Um, Did you guys read that story? Um, I was just pulling it up. I was remembering it. That it was also a time story about like a bunch of tenants in this building, a building in the Bronx that had just been like bought by a landlord that was, and and they managed to take it over, like go co-op, right? And like they 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 did this, you know, they did the. It was so cool, (laughs) but it was like also it's happened eleven times in the last five years, you know. Like it's (laughs) but but it's happened, right? Unicorn story, yeah. Yeah, But but I was just thinking, I was thinking about it when you were saying Tammy, because I remember that detail in the article that they were trying to have meet like organizing meetings in like a local, you know, bar and grill, and then like sort of had to be like, no, we, you know, we shouldn't hold this in places where people kind of have to buy stuff, right? Like it was just all of the delicacy of you know of. Like it's it's so personal to organize, yeah. In how in a, a building, do you so talk about the organizing you want to do in your building, and and also like can you talk about how your landlord reacted to your article in Hellgate? Oh my god! <laughs> well, I don't even know. You know, um, I'm not sure. Like we we still are just trying to build the fabric of solidarity that will be necessary yeah. for anything. Okay. Like just we're we're trying to get to just the the information sharing level of it. And I was like my mm-hmm. um, but you know when when my rent raise went up, I was like I was like okay because my boyfriend is newly a u- union organizer as of this year, and I was like okay between the two of us we have the skills. You know like I will <laughs> I will befriend and investigate. <laughs> you know and you will organize and will you know and um. But, you know, like, I think, so (laughs) this rent raise, everyone in the building is getting different numbers, you know, and, Mm. and we are not on any central chain of communication and have been, you know, kind of like never been placed on any, anyway, so I wrote this piece in Hellgate and Andrew had, he was like, okay, you should cut a couple of lines from here because I guarantee you, like, he's going to, your land, our landlord's going to read this. And we already, I, I already think that we're. Um, I, I wonder why our raise is higher than other, um, units in the building. Like we are, we are still wondering about that. Um, let's say, and, 
but so he um <laughs> he he and I so in this article I don't say anything about him other than he he raised the rent six hundred twenty five dollars and he wouldn't budge like I don't give any right. details about him I don't name him give any details about the building like there's a lot of stuff that that one could have added for color but you know I, I didn't and <laughs> and so he he writes to Hellgate being like um you know I found your article written by my tenant Gia and <laughs> I <laughs> and I I've, I've written this I've written this response which I thought you might like to post to stir up interest in your little piece um and 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 he like attached his name and like law firm and all of it and you know said, and he was like I'm not able to post it because I'm not able to buy a script subscription at this time but um you know like here it is and then he I sent this like detail <laughs> Like a, a 900 word thing, you know, just, um, I will, I will paraphrase, but just being like, you know, like you dumb socialists, don't you understand supply and demand and regulation makes everything worse and more scarce. Like, don't you know this? Anyone, you know, anyone who's ever read a book would know this. You, um, if you want to live in, you, you know, if you're a socialist and you want to live in city housing, go live in the project. You know, you can either have a nice apartment or you can live cheap and you can't have both. And that's just how the world works. Like you don't, ex this is a line. He was like, you don't expect to walk into a department store and get your goodies for free. Um, and he also compared yeah. uh, landlords to undocumented immigrants by saying that if we can call undocumented, if you can call his illegal aliens undocumented in immigrants, then surely we can call landlords housing providers. Um, <laughs> anyway, he wanted this to be published under the his name. The rebranding is so good. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then he was like, you know, I like I am I don't do this as a hobby or a social service and I am not ashamed of, you know, of raising your rent. And it was just I found it so funny because it's like. It's so, he, he was so triggered by a situation, like literally triggered by a situation. It's like, I felt that this article, it was like me trying to work out the way I blame myself for this in, in a lot of ways, mm. you know, and, and the way I blame my own desire for giant windows and also federal rent control, you know, and, and understanding that there is, <laughs> you know, there there is some sort of tension there in, in the way that like, I, I, I would read about what was happening in Good Cause Eviction and then I would look at galleries of beautiful $5 million houses in the Times, you know? <laughs> And um, anyway, but he, like, I was like, he has 100% of the structural power. And he also, and, and it is so upsetting to him that we are not grateful for, yeah. for shelter, you know, that, that like, it's not enough to be able to, to, to make as much money as you want, whenever you want it at your command, like whatever, th that he can do that. It's, he also wants people to be grateful to, you know, to pay him nauseating amounts of money every month right yeah. he, he and it's um it was a really beautiful example of of landlord brain or sorry housing provider brain and <laughs> i will be sending it to all the friends i make in my building <laughs> I, I, do you know pelagate's gonna publish it i thought it was no. actually kind of brilliantly lucid like yeah i thought it was funny I, like i read it too and i was just like well he's got some singers in here yeah <laughs> Kind of funny, like the shot at Jabari Brisport, who's our socialist. I like, crap. Like, I don't know. It was very funny. And well, it was very funny, but I don't think for the same. I don't think we think it's funny for the same reasons he thinks it's funny, right? right? Like, and I mean, I was gonna tell, like, you know, I was gonna tell. Chris Robbins, who I think you guys know, is like you should. I would let them publish it, and but but then he would get 
he would get negative feedback on it inevitably. Right. And then he would evict me, you know? Right. right. So right. he has the structural power as you just yeah. said. It is super interesting because that, that like shame that you're talking about, and I think it would be the last part that we, and then we got to move on to the other topic, but like that shame is like kind of that you write about and, but also the shame that he is trying to place on people like everyone kind of feels it, you know, and that's why that's what you were talking about, Tammy, right? Why it's kind of hard because people do blame themselves, right? Like we've just yeah. everyone is so conditioned to basically just be like, if I can't make rent, that's my fault, right? Even mm -hmm. if rent is higher, even if my landlord is like, then I should just find enough like this is the market. And like, this is how I have to respond to it. My job is to try and get to the brownstone one day right like that's like yeah. that's whole, my whole path in life and if I have to like deal with this this and this then then that's that's on me I do think it's a little bit different when it's about like services like you know like if heat doesn't work and stuff like that then people will get mad about that but I just I don't know there's this thing where people don't they basically just take on all of the blame for not making rent or for for being evicted upon themselves right and that's just really hard to shake i think that's why tenant our organizing is somewhat hard right it's just that yeah. we're so conditioned at all times to think that if we can't make these then we deserve to be evicted um right and i don't know i'm sure a lot of people listening in the show even even despite our you know listenerships general political leanings you know they probably feel that way too i don't know yeah. i felt like that that way throughout my entire 20s and early 30s you know it's like it's my job to make this rent if I can't then I should just move to a to a cheaper place you know well, um, yeah I've been I've been thinking about that well I was like two things I um my my friend Miss Nancy who lives in the Fort Greene public housing like she was saying how like she and I were talking about this and um and she's like she effectively feels that their lack of consumer power and the you know the like kind of prevents any effective anything within, you know, to, mm -hmm. to improve their living conditions, to improve anything in the building to, you know, to get like, it, it, it is sort of broken, you know, avenues towards like solidarity and change, you know, and because of, I think, a constellation of feelings that, that, you, you know, you were just talking about. Mm -hmm. And I also have been going back and forth with myself. It's like, I, it's true that I don't deserve to live in this, like there's nothing inherently, I don't deserve to live in any neighborhood that I want, but I have, and I've been trying to like not think that, you know, I've been trying to break my brain of that idea before yeah. it takes hold, you know, especially like with a kid and in public school, you know, like I, I just want to sort of leave this neighborhood before that takes hold maybe. But, um, mm -hmm. but I'm also like, it is pretty fucked up that like, I, I, I do, I'm like, damn, like, I don't deserve, I don't deserve to live in the place where I've made my community. I, I gotta leave, you know, like I, I have, oh, um, that's so you know, and, but on the one hand, I think it's kind of true. Like, I don't, like, I don't, I have I mean, no claim to so, this place, but, but it's, but I'm just like, yep, couldn't hack it. Yeah. And I gotta go, you know? Right. And but I, that's so tragic to me. Cause we, yeah, like you're my neighbor, like we lose another good person who cares about the community. Like Miss Nancy loses a friend, like that matters, you know, yeah, it does. Yeah. Bougie or whatever, like it matters. And I think that's, yeah, I, I mean, I, I am curious, we have a housing um, organizer in our discord named Ruti and maybe she has some ideas or other people have ideas about how to, how they talk through this with folks. Yeah. But yeah, right. I do think like, I totally understand you and validate that feeling Gia, but also like it is fucked that you have to leave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also I think it's like, you know, like there's this dynamic in New York city that I noticed a lot in my building. I lived on Eastern Parkway and the building that I lived in had like 98 units, I think. So it was like, it was one of those huge buildings on Eastern Parkway. 
And, um, you know, it was like there were it was a lot of young professionals and those young professionals were mostly white and Asian. And then there was like some small contingent of, of black people who had been living there, you know, for yeah. 40, 50 years. And it was almost like there was this tentativeness amongst the people to really advocate for anything. Right. Right. Because they felt like, if well, we're the go. gentrifiers. We're the gentrifiers. We can't do anything. And these people were probably right. people making like a household income of like somewhere between $250,000, So oh, like wow. They're like upper middle class people. But um, but they didn't feel like they could say anything about anything in the entire neighborhood, right? And so then you have this situation where the majority of people who are living in the neighborhood are to, are kind of using that as an excuse to be mm-hmm. apathetic about what happens and not get involved because they feel like it's not their place right. to be involved. And they're the ones right. with the capital bargaining power because they have right, all the right, money. Right, right, right. And, but it was a problem, really you know? Hard. And like, um, and... I remember just feeling in this like weird, I felt that quandary myself, of course, you know, yeah. but like, um, and then there was like people who were like, well, we have to do right by the people who have been here for the longest, you know, but the people who had been there for the longest were like, you know, like a lot of them just didn't, they weren't like activists. They were just people. You right. know? And so they're just like, I don't know. I'm just living here and I'm old. You know? right. So, so it was like a bunch of like kind of rich white people, like projecting what those people yeah. would actually want, but then not doing but anything about it. But then being too scared it. to do anything. Right. About right. It. So, but also because really it, you know, a lot of it does go against their best interests, you know? And so yeah. like, then it's just like total inertia. Um, but yeah. All right. So let's go to the yeah. next topic that we're going to talk about, which is that you wrote a series over the past, I don't know, like like month or six weeks or so. You've written a series of great articles for The New Yorker about, um, you know, what's happening with abortion. It's gone. You know, some of it is personal. Some of it is about policy. And we wanted to talk about, you know, like sort of it as a as like a body of, mm. of work. Right. So um I like. Do you want to just tell us at first, like, why this is something that has like sort of inspired to, you to write so much? You know, mm. outside of you know the obvious it being a big story and everything like that. Yeah, I think like ab- abortion to me is it will. So it, it for a long time it has been a very interesting subject to write about for me because it is the one that is the most intractable. It is the most seemingly intractable on a sort of national level, but on an individual like reader feedback level, it has been one of the most shockingly not flexible, but, um, you know, there is there is much more give in. Like, I still continue to feel that there is a value in trying to figure out a way to write about it well, Mm. because um, and I also because I've had so many, so many surprising interactions, like emails, you know, just conversations with people around it that don't at all seem reflected. You know, we we think of it as a sort of permanently polarized, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, but I think that there, I think so much of that comes from the fact that there, as we, abortion is something that's only spoken about in the abstract, right? It's like the mother, the fetus, right? And it's, and it's not like where it's, it's as common as, as any like as anything else in life, right? It's like a quarter of a quarter of women have one, and it's like there's something to me that still feels like there is. It was sort of like when people were figuring out how to write about sexual violence with nuance. It's like there there is something that needs to be done, even in my own understanding, that I can only work out through writing. And it also this is also because I grew up in ultra conservative evangelical Texas, like never met a pro-choice person until I went to college or my parents are pro-choice, but they didn't fucking tell me. And, you know, and, um, 
And so I, I grew up like enmeshed in the in the thinking that now controls essentially controls America, and I believe that abortion should be like free, easy, available till the very end of pregnancy, kind of unconditionally. But I grew up thinking that it was murder, and so mm-hmm. I think that. Um, and so I, I, I continue to find it interesting to write about from, you know, like a policy point of view, a kind of theological point of view, a, you know, an, an intimate point of view, like after having a baby. Um, I, I sometimes it's one of those things where like I have caught myself in the past at The New Yorker just writing repetitive blog posts after blog posts being like, this is why it's bad. This is why it's bad. Like everyone hates women. And then I'm like, what the fuck? Like I'm just preaching, you know, to people who are already <laughs> agree with me. But then I. But then something will happen and I'll remember like there is there is a value in trying to figure out if there is a way to say something else. And I like I remember I wrote about I interviewed a woman who actually I saw her this morning, Erica Christensen, who's now a full time abortion activist. Who I interviewed at Jezebel in like nice. 2015 or something. Oh, she had wow. gotten an abortion at 32 weeks. And we ran like a 7,000 word interview with her about getting an abortion at 32 weeks. And I think like 3 million people read it or something. And it, and it ultimately led to her becoming a full-time abortion activist and really pushing through New York's reproductive health act, which arguably is it, it, it inscribed Roe into the state constitution. Like in doing so it was like Roe, as we know, is like pretty insufficient to begin with. So it's sort of like, it was not the strongest it's not the strongest of legislation. And like, I think she feels a bit of regret about it, but, but I like, there's just still, there are so many, despite it's like ubiquity and the kind of repetitive horror of all these cases we keep hearing about. It's like, it just still feels to me like I want to try to find a way. And it's also, you know, Tammy, you were in the great piece you wrote about the, um, about all of the abortion patients from the Southeast and elsewhere flooding into, you know, these, for now, abortion havens in the Northeast that may, you know, that may flip depending on what happens in the governorship, like Pennsylvania. Um, you know, there was something that you said that played into like the so the two pieces that I wrote recently. One was like an obit, like a pre-written obituary for Roe that I wrote. Right, you know, got extremely depressed the month beforehand, just sort of tracking what was definitely going to happen. And then the other one was I was trying to write an, an argument for the sacredness of abortion for an argument for the morality of abortion on exclusively Christian terms. Like I thought that that would be, I thought that would be interesting to try to do, you know? And I also wanted to try to acknowledge that I think um, something you said in your piece, which is like, and I think this comes up with often in so many progressive issues where like any amount of give, like there's this feeling that acknowledging any mixed feelings like yeah. any sadness around abortion, any 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 language other than like abortion is necessary medicine and abortion, you know, like like the the clump of cells language, which I believe in and use. Like I do think abortion right. is medicine, and I do think a six week old fetus is a clump of cells. But but I think there's a fear that acknowledging that some version of a life or a life, you know, some some precursor to a person or possibly in third trimester abortion, which I believe should be legal, you know, that there is some personhood there, right? Um, acknowledging that seems too hot to look at or to touch or to acknowledge. And there's something, you know, arguably it's counterproductive to try to write about that at this moment, but I think I wanted to to see yeah. if I could acknowledge that, you know, the the like inherent violence of all of it, right? The inherent violence oh, really? of, of the of the most wanted pregnancy, the inherent violence of the ability to 
to reproduce and mm-hmm. and the inherent violence of people's idea of God anyway, right? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I find that issue really interesting and, and hard to write about, right? It's hard to write about um, like that last line in your piece when the woman was, you know, the woman with four kids or whatever it was, was like, you got to get out of here. I love you, but it's time <laughs> to go, you know? And it's like yeah. people can, you know, pro-abortion people, again, of whom I have certainly won, like it's, there's a fear around acknowledging that. And I think it is probably ultimately counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Right. There's that like super viral comedian clip that has been going around of Bill Burr. You know, he's saying, well, on the one hand, you know, don't tell her what to do. On the other hand, it's kind of like killing a baby in some way. Right. And like, there's like so oh man it's like the most viral clip on the internet right but now it's not something that i would personally agree with but i think it's just like there's some desire out there for some sort of thing then that people i don't know i don't i don't really have an opinion on whether it's productive or counterproductive gia but i do think like i have been struck by the fact that the pieces that i see that people talk about the most at least are the ones that try and dabble in like, you know, like some sort of like, okay, like, you know, how do we talk about this? Like, I don't remember when Caitlin Flanagan of like wrote that piece about what like a fetus looks like or something like that. Right. I just find that I think that the public's general appetite for reading about this might not be like just wanting to hear what they believe politically. Right. Like they, they want to sort of explore what this is at this point, um, even if they are not going to change a single one of their opinions. Now, I don't think and that's think necessarily kind of true do. on the anti-abortion side. Right? I mean, you know, it's the, the fact that like, you know, they're like, I'm, I'm in no way saying that I am like, but there are a lot of people who grew up evangelical or Catholic that are now like, you know, clinic mm-hmm. escorts, right? Like, I think right. that's, that's a, that's a commitment. Like, I think there's a, the sacred, I, mean, I remember I, I started interviewing late abortion providers around the, like there was an after tiller doc. I think that's what it was called in like maybe oh, yeah. 2013. And I, I remember I, I interviewed a couple of, there were, you know, there were like five of them that only practice openly in the United States, maybe four. And I interviewed them, you know, this is a long, I guess it was eight years ago already and, or more. And I just remember feeling like, like nobody, nobody is more aware of what they have on their hands at, you know, with a 22 week old fetus than an abortion doctor. No, right. like they pray with, they pray with the patients that, that want to call it a baby. Right. And they, wow. you know, like they, they do, they ask them if they want footprints, you know, like they, they know. And it just felt to me like really like, you know, this is like just my, my religious indoctrination, like never leaving me, but it felt there was something very godly about it. There was something very divine about that compassion and that, dealing with life and death, you know, and, and, Mm -hmm. and the, and the kind of the love and the, the, the brutality of it. And I say brutality in the way that I think like all pregnancy is brutal. Like it's, um, there was just something. And I think also, I think one of the things that I've been, I think one of the things that the anti-abortion, one of the things that they pick, that they call like left-wing hypocrisy is the idea that like a miscarriage at nine weeks can be mourned as, you know, the loss of like a life, right? Like a, a full, right. meaningful life. Right. But then when it is an unwanted pregnancy at the same amount of time, you know, and, and I, and I, and I kind of, I understand why that reads as hypocrisy and I don't yeah. think it is, but, but I think it speaks to that fear, that fear or, or and a lack of courage in saying like, it's even like the, even the, 
the way that Roe relied and kind of invented the viability standard as like an ethical, totally. right? It's it's like, it's, yeah. it is a, it is sort of a cowardly thing that's like, that is not acknowledging that if people's bodies have this capacity to create and destroy, then yes. there is, there is like never going to be a neat ethical way to, you know, to govern any of it. Right. And, and it's like the, the whole, and I think that, um, you know, kind of like, even if it were, even if it were taking a full life, a full, full life, you know, we should be able to defend it as necessary, you know, I think. And I think that, and I think that's something that people are very afraid. Like it's the very like abortion should be safe, legal and rare kind of thinking that got us here. Did you guys, um, do you guys know this writer, Sophie Lewis? She wrote Full Surrogacy Now. She's like a socialist communist. Yeah, I haven't read that. Um, Kind of repro writer. Yeah, she wrote an essay in The Nation recently. I think it's called something like Abortion is Killing and That's Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a piece like (laughs) that. It's like, I've been It's like, we need, we need this. Like, it's, (laughs) you know, and it's like, and so is pregnancy. Like, a quarter of, like, like, a quarter of pregnancies end in death, you know, (laughs) like, like, end in the death of the fetus already, (laughs) you know? It's like, yeah. Um, I, I wanted to talk about, like, this piece this uh sort of you wrote about this and you know i want to read from the piece and it's about like the um you know like what is a what is a message and i think this is something that's discussed a lot right but i think it's very specific now you wrote that many of those who support the right to abortion have tacitly accepted that poor and minority women in conservative states lost access to abortion long before the supreme court decision and have quietly hoped that the thousands of women facing arrest after pregnancy, miscarriage, stillbirth, or even healthy deliveries were unfortunate outliers, right? And so what you're sort of portraying here is like, you know, what is a reality of this, which is that, you know, for people in New York or in California and blue states, right, that um, especially wealthy people, right, for now, that the reality is not, is different than people who are poor and who are in, in, in red states or places like Indiana, for example, that just recently um went in this direction but like i mean like do you think like how do you think that this that sort of split is affecting some of the response to mm-hmm. to the overturning of roe because you know like it's like i expected i'll just say like i expected much bigger civil unrest for lack of a better word much more sort of protests about this than there have been i think i was wrong about that like i just thought that there would be yeah. mass national protests and I felt that way because of the women's march right and I also felt that way because of two years ago how much people were able to mobilize and Mm -hmm. this is not to say that there hasn't been mobilization or protest but man it's much smaller than I thought you know and I wonder what that sort of split how how it's playing into it you know both of like just asking Mm -hmm. both of you I have I've been thinking about this too and I think that well it's interesting because like in one in one respect like I will always like I both like post 2020, I kind of, I'm now sort of like every protest should involve destruction of property. <laughs> like, like I've now become like only pro riot. Like now, like, like, I mean, as much as I, you know, I've, I've been to a million like abortion protests, I will always go. My baby has gone to that, you know, I, I believe in it, but I'm also, I'm also like after 2020, I'm like, Oh no, like I, we need like, yeah. um, like, uh, like, the sort of like folk politics or the, you know, like aspect of, of the, you know, the innumerable abortion protests I've been to over the years. Like, I remember the one, the, the day that the day after the SCOTUS leak, I went to one in downtown Manhattan and it was just like a bunch of 
speakers being like, women, we have each other's backs and like, we will not let them take our, and and it's like, you know, just this incredibly, it was, it was incredibly demobilizing and it was incredibly, like, there's a way in which many, I don't know, like many abortion protests have, have had like a taste of deep, of sort of, um, cheerful demobilizing and sort of self-congratulate, like much more so than the kind of life or death, like the life or death stakes that were emphasized like every second of, you know, every particle of the aura in 2020. Right. But I I also think that there, you know, there are plenty of people um, like plenty of activists and sort of like access network people that I've been talking to. It's like, unlike with police brutality, like with abortion, you know, if there is a limited amount of time, it's arguable that you're, that like, I mean, for me, I was like, I'm better off, you know, you're, you're probably better off doing an intake shift. You're much better off doing an intake shift for a volunteer helpline than you are spending three hours listening to someone, you know, listening to like an Instagram celebrity say like women will support each other, you know? And so like, I think there was an element of, of that where like the need for actual like practical, like practical pragmatic mobilization um, for some, you know, for the most committed may have may you know it's like people were just doing the trainings and they were do you know like it was like it was a real sort yeah. of like all hands on deck kind of thing that i think decreased protest turnout a little bit mm-hmm. tammy what do you think i mean there are you did you think that there would be there would be more or less or like what yeah i did i did hope that there would be more but yeah i think like along the lines of what gia said too um there's a little bit maybe like a framework issue of like so much of this has kind of like either been legalized or sort of like made so clinical that it's kind of behind closed doors. And then I think like the major women's groups aren't really kind of membership organizations in a way that we would think would be useful right, right. in terms of mobilizing in this moment. So yeah, I went to, it's been disappointing, I, but, but I can't my, quite figure out like how I, to do it. I also think like with your earlier point about the, you know, I, Rebecca Traster wrote a great piece on this that went up, you know, like shortly after, I don't remember whether it was the leak or the decision, right. but it was like, as we found out with the pandemic, right, anytime you discuss the fact that, you know, some political reality only affects, you know, primarily affects poor brown and black people, like, then white people stop caring about it, right? And so, like, it, it's been, to me, it's been, it's like a fine you know, you, you want to emphasize that you want to emphasize that. But for me, it's like mostly in, in so far as people who were suddenly like, oh my God, what do we do? You know, or like actually enormous networks of people all around the country have already been preparing for this moment since the ban started passing in Texas in 2010, 2011. And yeah, like right. in so far as to emphasize, like there, no one needs to, to invent anything. Like there are, there mm-hmm. are people who can already do this, but I think like Tracer, she brought up you know, up till this point, and and still, especially with the prosecution, like pregnancy-related prosecutions, like you know, people, women being arrested for you know subutex or you know, like all of these things, and getting charged with like chemical endangerment of a minor, you know, or possession and distribution yeah. for taking their like with you know for for treating their opioids addictions, like it's those things will certainly be concentrated mm-hmm. like almost exclusively in you know disempowered people, but. Um, but in terms of the surveillance nets, like the, in terms of the, in terms of the lawsuits that can be lodged against anybody, you know, on behalf of a fetus on, yeah. you know, like, like she was pointing out, it's like, th- these barriers are about to get way more porous than they were before. Like, mm-hmm. you know, as also like middle-class people are getting hollowed out in every direction. It's like, um, like, yeah, the people that can at any second pay to like, who could, let's say, 
pay to fly to Europe at the drop of a hat, you know, like the people right. that will be fine no matter what happens anywhere ever, they'll always be fine. But for like, I think she was saying like, you know, like a middle-class mother of three in Cleveland, you know, right. like who's to say yeah. that they're, they are protected by white privilege two years from now, yeah. three years from now. Right. Yeah. And but also like, what did, I didn't read her piece, but what did she say about why white people turned out in 2020 then for black? Lives right. Matter? That's right. like, that's, that's, she didn't, I don't, I read that piece and I thought that that piece was good. And I, but I also thought that like, I, I, I understand what she's coming from in terms of how focusing so much on identity and, you know, like sort of this, almost like standpoint epistemology type of thing saying like, right. okay, we have to think of the most oppressed person by this law and listen to them. Why that can be destabilizing or at least deactivating in a type of way. But every time I, you know, and this is like a big theme of our show, you know, it's like right. me and Tammy being like POC, mildly anti-identity politics people, you know, but... <laughs> I also just was like, whenever I start having these types of thoughts, I try and be very, like, not mindful in a way of like how whether or not it's actually happening. And I'm not sure if that was really the real message that I saw in many places. You know that yeah. okay, let's we have to think about these people first. You know, right? I don't think that it happened to that same extent. And then, like Tammy was saying, I was like, okay, I agree that around COVID that this was a real problem, right? Um, and the reason the I think that epidemiologists had a very specific reason for that was because in a lot of cities, the only people who were really getting mm -hmm. sick were these people, you know, people who are service workers, a lot of Latino You're people. You're right. Here There's in the a Bay meaningful Area. difference. Right. Everyone gets um, pregnant but, the exact same way. <laughs> right. Right. But um, but then I was like, well, OK, even if that example is true, like the biggest protests in American yeah. history were happening around a slogan around Black Lives Matter and like, you know, right. and and pure standpoint epistemology where like white people are told like you have to be allies right you, this is not your struggle and yet it still was able to turn out millions and millions of people so i don't know it's like one of those things that where I, i'm not i agree with it if it was like a geometric proof that was laid out on a piece of paper in some ways but then i'm just like well i don't know if this is like reflecting the reality right well, now. well i agree I'm with like, the i agree with the fact that like the um like to me, I took the Rebecca Tracer piece to be mostly about something that, um, and like, unfortunately, I'm back lurking on Twitter because I've been looking at pro-life accounts all the time to, you know, it's like really done wonders for my like suggested, you know, whatever. But, um, <laughs> but, but like, I, I think, you know, the thing that I did think was fair to be like, this is not helpful. Cause I, I agree with what you're saying, Jay, but is the like, you know, like shut up white women, you're going to be fine. Right. Right. You know, yeah. like that, I don't think is, is, is right. useful in any direction. Right. Because it's right. like, it's agree. like, that is so transparently, you know, kind of demobilizing and whatever. And like, um, and you're right. I, I do think that like, um, the desperation and the, and the sorrow and the anger, like the palpable, like people are quite capable of, you know, the, even just, you know, the, the stories that have, taken over the conversation so far like the 10 year old like it's like you, you know like even if you know that you will never be that 10 year old or your 10 year old will never be right. that you know it's like people are like it's um that there is something like universalizing about pregnancy also and 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 you know your body containing reproductive organs that are you know that are permeable that um that is like it is in this respect and i think it is proving to be like there is more there is more grounds for solidarity than 
Right. People can mm-hmm. still feel outrage on other people's behalf yeah. in America. And I think it's like a weird thing to admit, but it just seems to be true and borne out by the last 10 years, you know? Which but, it, like, but then you can make the opposite yeah. side of the argument, which is like, you know, we saw reproductive rights get decimated all over the country for the literal last decade, you know, like people right, who were right, like, people right. who were like, yeah. I mean, we just never saw it coming. And I was like, I mean, it was, yeah. it was clearly yeah. like, we knew, we knew it was coming. We knew it was coming and people right. in Texas knew it was coming in 2011. Anyone who followed repro knew it was coming in 2016. Like it was an absolute mm-hmm. guarantee with Kavanaugh. You know, it was guaranteed yeah. to be 40 years after Amy Coney Barrett. And, you know, like, it's like, um, and, and we did, you know, the, whatever we were talking about here, it's like, that did happen kind of unabated, yeah. you know? And it's like, these things were reversed. Like, and I think the thing that, um, like in Texas, a lot of the restrictive um, regulations that shut down a lot of clinics like earlier last decade, they were reversed. They were, you know, um, and it's like Texas, it's like every year there's 400 anti-abortion things just like introduced, you know, and then three stick, you know, but they, you know, and they were, even when those regulations were no longer active, it's like the, a huge number of the clinics stay closed. Right. And I, um, I, like I was so depressed for I don't know like Tammy I don't know how you if you get depressed when you're writing stuff like that and reporting like do you Yeah it's hard It's really hard it's really really hard because when you're following someone's story really intimately it's like the thing that was is both galvanizing and like um paralyzing to me depending on like the hour is that every like untenable life altering like negatively life altering pregnancy and every pregnancy is life altering like um every child is life altering like it is it is a universe it is a lifelong universe of additional hardship right like it is like all the like the turnaway study these studies that are like it is you know it is a it is essentially a guarantee that if you're in poverty you will stay in poverty and your your kids will too it is like a it is um you know and and it is like a universe of of pain if some like one abortion that is not obtained when it is desired is an entire universe of pain and then you remember it's like and every abortion that someone is able to obtain is is it's a lease back on the life that they were planning for and and like that fact that like every single story can like can i know can explode to be a world as big as your own life right and 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 it and it's both like really really overwhelming to think about on one side and then it's like okay like every three hundred dollars that is donated to one of these funds will get somebody to Colorado and it will get someone an abortion and it will change their life like for the better and Mm -hmm. um but I like that that I find really the the scale the the macro like every little micro bead of it is uh, is a universe right I felt like when I was reading your first essay in particular, just because it landed that day. And, you know, it was, it got, I think it got around a lot because we all sort of needed things to cling to and yeah. sort of help process at that moment. So I was really grateful for that. I, I felt also that it had so much texture because you've been doing this work for so long. And I was wondering how you, like whether this period has also kind of made you reflect on your work a decade ago in Jezebel and kind of like wet feminist publishing and this kind of because feminist publishing has always sort of been deeply entangled with this issue of yeah. obviously bodily autonomy and reproductive justice. Um, 
How are you kind of thinking about that, looking back on your work, looking back on the trajectory of these publications? Mm-hmm. Like, did we do enough? Are there other things we could have done? Like, was it just the patriarchy and we couldn't figure out something better? Like, yeah. I, I feel like there's a lot to reflect on just even as writers and reporters in this space. I, I think that the biggest, I, like, we, in regards to abortion, I think in, as in regards to everything, like, I think that the biggest failures in popular feminism of the kind that, like, gave me a media job you know, over the, like the last, that, that gave me my first media jobs, like Dove Beauty, Everyone's Beautiful Feminism. <laughs> like Amy Schumer <laughs> gave an inspiring speech at the Teen Choice Awards feminism shit is like, um, is, is what it always was, is that it was a feminism built around individual success rather than collective well-being. And it was, you know, like a implicit yeah. celebrity that like that the, that celebrity lives were the were the codexes through which we would read our own. And as such, it was like, like permanently obsessed with whiteness. And, and I, and I always found that offensive. I don't know if there was, you know, I I think I've always had that standpoint. I never, I I feel very anti-celebrity. I've always been very anti-celebrity and been, um, you know, I was like pretty non, no, you know, I was averse to the lean in stuff, but but I was in, entangled in it because it was that kind of feminism that um, it was that kind of feminism that made beauty companies advertise on Jezebel, you know, like it was like I was entangled yeah. in it no matter what. And yeah. I, I don't yeah. and I wouldn't have been able to write, you know, like, let's say that interview a person who got an abortion at 32 weeks and like have so many people read it if Jezebel had also not gotten its cultural traction by being extremely celebrity focused. And so I, like, yeah. I, I always felt complicated about that, but I, I think, you know, I've realized, um, I did go back and read like interviews that I had done with, let's say late term abortion doctors or like Rebecca Gompertz who runs that organization, women on waves. Like, I think we're going to see like a really exciting sort of, um, we're going to see a lot of activism around the coast, like around the Southeast and like the Gulf of Mexico that people have been doing in like Poland and Venezuela for a really long time where there are going to be mm-hmm. ships providing medication to people <laughs> in these states, right? Like like Rebecca Gompertz runs Aid Access now, which is one of the organizations that's providing pills to people in prohibition states. But I, I, did, I did a horrible interview with her like at Jezebel, like a really just like a bad, like decentered, like I don't know what was going on with me that day, but it was like, the extent to which I was still undoing the idea that abortion was something that needed to be justified. I I was undoing that for a lot longer than I remembered, you know, like I was, I was squeamish about it in like a kind of centrist Libby way, like in a way that I didn't, you know, like I, I was, I was delicate around the language and I, and I was afraid of, 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 of acknowledging that abortion took a life or a version of it. Right. Like there was, there was, I, I was timid too. I, I, um, or, or, you know, certainly th- there was part of it where I, I did not have the, like the anti-carceral framework that, you know, that is, that I now feel to be like found and, and, and actually with all of this, right? Like it's all of the, like, I sort of think that decarceration is the, as it is at the issue of the abortion fight now in general, right? Like it's, it's, it's not even really about a, like abortion access. It's about, it's, it's not even like, should abortion be legal or not? It's should abortion be criminalized or not, right? It's, it's, an, yeah. it's, it's a question right. about what we find it proper to incarcerate people for. And now we're back to 2020, right? And, um, and I think that like, I, I now think of abortion much more in that way. It's, it's a fight about criminalization and incarceration um, where I really didn't think like that mm. in 2015. And, um, mm. and, and I'm like embarrassed of old, like older pieces that I wrote, but also I guess, 
you know, I, I guess you have to pass through these steps on your way to your <laughs> radicalization or whatever, <laughs> you know, but I do think, I mean, um, like I was talking to Dana Tortorici, who I think is going to like at N plus one, who's was, is working on a piece about exactly this, right? Like the, like the, the framing is, should it be legal or illegal? Okay. And I think that's not, you know, like it's the, the question is, is other than that. And it maybe always should have been other than that. Mm, that's helpful. I, here's my last question. Cause we're running out of time, which is, and you know, like it's, I don't want it to seem like this has just been like a string of losses and people feeling apathetic because we had this amazingly, um, this sort of amazing result in Kansas, right? Where, yeah. um, yeah. where, and I think it was a, I don't know, it, it is mobilization in a lot of ways, right? Like it is a lot of white women who are probably middle class white women, and many of them Christian, coming out, I think, and and delivering this uh, sort of stunning result right yeah. now i don't know what if it was like unexpected that this would fail but i think that the margin to which it failed yeah. was shocking surprising to me. people yeah. right and that um and that even though it's not like a perfect law right in terms of it's not like the greatest um yeah. version of this that could happen there was like a very big repudiation through the ballot box right Definitely. of what this could be and now everyone is sort of theorizing what effect this will have on midterms in the 2024 election and whatever and you know every like i think uh david shore all these like sort of popularists who like are people that tammy and i sometimes fight with but like their general stance on this is just like this is the most this is the issue that everyone has to run on right yeah. because it's the most popular one and it's the most mobilizing one and it seems like at least early on they're right about this right um i don't know like what what, what was your takeaway from from what happened in Kansas? Like what, what did it sort of, what possibilities did it open up for you? And, um, you know, like what, I don't know, is there anything that you sort of like, you know, stuck in your head about, uh, about what had happened? Well, I think like, I, I feel mostly uncomplicated, like joy about Kansas. I was so surprised. I was so surprised at the margin and the mm -hmm. turnout, the, like the, the turnout alone, right? And and it's like yeah. having felt previously extremely um, <laughs> uh, pessimistic about the, the midterms <laughs> um, and just everything, like yeah. you know, like right. anticipating a DeSantis <laughs> yeah. 2024, like I think I I have not like. I mean, in general now, like I try to just be very like smooth brain, think nothing, expect nothing unless I'm writing about it. Like that's kind of been the stance <laughs> I've adopted, you know, <laughs> just be real smooth. But I, um, but I, I mean, yeah, I think this will be, this is like probably the, the this is the Democrats. I mean, I, I was so furious after like, you know, the thing where like fucking Pelosi, like reading her fucking poem. Like I was, I was so angry. Like I, I was and am so angry because it was, it began to feel to me like they, you know, this whole thing, like they were so surprised by it, right? It's like every repro activist has been working towards this moment for eight years, right? And, and like right. all the Democrats were like, oh my God, like what? Like <laughs> you gotta know me, you know? And it was like, and, and I started to feel like, you know, I mean, I'm still a believer in electoral politics. What the fuck else do we have? You know, like, I mean, not in its right, but it's like in its centrality for sure. But I, I, I began to like really feel around then. I was like, oh, you actually don't give a shit about women. Like you, you actually really don't care. Like you don't, 
you have no interest in protecting this. You actually never have. You do it because it pulls well with your base, but you have no morals, no beliefs, and you are excited mm. about this insofar as it is a fundraising opportunity. And like, that's it, you know? And I still feel that way about like most of the the center of the Democratic Party, that it's like, it's not a true belief in the right to abortion. It's just like this. But I do think that it is their, it is their best mobilizing chance in the midterms. And I think, I think, like, I don't know if we'll get three, you know, swing three seats out of it. But like, I think, mm-hmm. I don't know, what do you, what do you think about how, what do you think about it, Tammy? <laughs> and the one that I, yeah, I agree with that anger. I mean, the one data point I'll say is like, I'm here in Ohio right now. And, um, you know, there's this interesting governor's race where I don't think the Democratic candidate probably has a, a very good chance. She's one of the only women who I think has ever run on the, her party ticket for governor in Ohio. But, you know, she's opposing Mike DeWine, who's like become this rapidly anti-abortion dude. And she, her support has gone up so much really since the decision. And she is campaigning on it, like very, very hardcore. Yeah. So I I just, yeah. And I mean, I think she actually maybe does actually believe in it, you know, so I think um, we'll see. I mean, it's, I think going to a thing she did this week, I I sort of felt like listening to the questions and like, maybe this is a thing that actually will turn people. Yeah. And And I wonder. Even if we have all these cynical monsters, like, you know, there will be some good out of it. Well, at the state level, 100%. I mean, the Democratic governors that protect it, I mean, I I do think they, you know, like the ones that have been like, you know, like Pennsylvania, right? The people that are striking down shit left and right, like they do clearly believe in it. And I think governors' races are, you know, the primary ones for for this in general, right? But I, one thing that I wonder about the, like the, I wonder if the question we've been sort of talking about, about messaging, right? How, if it will yeah. be possible slash necessary to have many different registers, like in possibly competing registers, because I think that one thing that will turn out lots of like moderate white women is like, look, they made that 10 year old like cross state lines to give birth and I they are, you know, right. and, and, yeah, and like right. there, there is like a real okay. argument that we should be that, that, that we like operating on that register leaves us vulnerable to the un, quote unquote unsympathetic cases and that, you know, it, mm-hmm. we need to, but at the same time, I do think that that is those those seemingly extreme kind of heartstrings cases are the ones that will turn out the women that are going to, you know, that are that are pushing her approval, you know, and I and I agree with the idea that that messaging shouldn't be central. But like, I think, you know, even in even in like permanently anti-abortion states where people are going to be needing to fight against like broad application of like child neglect, you know, like the, the pregnancy prosecution mm-hmm. stuff, like people are going to have to be fighting and people are fighting those misapp, you know, misapplications of those, of those laws kind of on conservative terms basically. And with mm-hmm. on conservative sympathies and, and I think that will be really interesting. And I wonder if it'll be possible to kind of, you know, that the, the state by state strategies will have to be kind of in conflict. Um, and, that, yeah. and that'll be okay. I think that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably right. Like, cause it is different in different places, especially like if you're in a place where it's literally on the ballot, right. As opposed mm-hmm. to like being in Massachusetts or something like that, obviously the messaging will have to be a lot different around it, but yeah, I don't know. It's like, I, I, I think it's a, uh, I don't know. I don't mean, I don't, I just think it's, interesting how much it's swung right and um and i don't 
I feel less of the just purely on the electoral results, right? Whereas I think like four months ago, I was basically like, we're going to have Republican rule for 30 years. You know, like my kid is going to be like, I mean, I still kind of like, years old. Like, <laughs> you know? I still kind like, of like feel I might not be alive, you know, <laughs> like, but it's like, like, it's just, we have no chance. And now it's like a little bit of crack in that, like, sort of like, you know, despair. Um, and that doesn't mean that, like, you know, obviously this was a good thing that happened. But I think it has at least been mobilizing in this way that even if we can't see it on the streets so much, mm-hmm. like definitely have have, you know, seen it, I think, in polls and in and, and, and Kansas and different places where we wouldn't have expected. And so I don't I don't want it. I just don't want it to seem like we're saying um, I don't even care what we're saying or what it <laughs> seems like we're saying. But I just don't want it to just be like, oh it's so bad. Nobody cares, et cetera, et cetera. Cause it doesn't no, make people, a lot of people yeah. do care very yeah. much. Yeah. People do care. And I've been like, every time I like post like a clinic fund on Instagram, I try to bully men into, I'm like, I'm, I'm really like, I think one of my, one of my prim- primary priorities is, is to, is to get men really into abortion. Um, um, yeah. I you think know. that's really important. You yeah, know, I know. Um, where do you guys stand on like the feasibility or the, like the court packing? Or the, you know, the, I don't know. I don't like, I don't really believe that much in like this idea that like, oh, they're all, there's this core group of fragile people who might vote Democrat or Republican, right? And that if you do anything that seems a little bit crazy, that they're going to flip on you. You know, like, I don't know if all elections are going to be determined that sort of way. I think it's somewhat reductive, kind of wonky thinking to think that. And yet I do think like maybe like people feel very emotional about the Supreme Court. <laughs> you know, and I don't and like, like I just have a hard this. Yeah, I, I, I just think it's really same. hard. I yeah, like, I feel it's totally like, helpless about it. Yeah, yeah I mean, but like, that's what okay. gives me that thirty years feeling, right? It's like Right, right, right. Yeah. right. Like, Where it's like people are just like, No, this is what America's supposed to be and this is how it's always been. Even though obviously, you know, the court used to be five people and then it you know, was expanded, but, um, one thing that uh, I think, sorry, I know we're going so long, but one thing that in this respect, like, um, I think one thing that is, again, it's not good, but it is constructive is that like, I think a a kind of new group of people, like, let's say like comfortable white women or, you know, I mean, like maybe non-white, you know, more than this, but I think a lot of people in that group are maybe around our age, like are realizing that rights are things that actually have to be fought for and defended, you know, that like, like people that grew up with end of history vibes, you know, like, (laughs) are are, you know, are are realizing that, like, actually, like Roe was one after, you know, 90 years of feminists, like trying to get birth control and abortion. And like, yeah, maybe if we're fucking dead by the time, like the, like, you know, whatever, whatever, like burning Supreme (laughs) court, like floating on an ice cube, you know, like (laughs) it, it, it still matters. Like it, like I've, you know, yeah. I'm thinking about it in terms of this, this child, you know, like that I have that, that may at some point in her life have like a federal ban on abortion placed on her. Right. It's like, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think that it is good to reintroduce the reality that like, we're not, um, that everything can be reversed and everything can be mm-hmm. taken, you know, everything can and has been taken for granted, including voting, including abortion. Yeah. 
<laughs> you know, and like, uh, it's not great that we're, you know, forced to consider these things right now. But I do think that if there is somewhat of a slow sea change that reminds people, you know, that, that you have to, you know, maybe attend a meeting or a training, you know, to like that it's, that you have to, you can't count on anything, right? Like, I, like that aspect yeah. of it, which I'm kind of like seeing in some people in my circle or life. Like it's, I think that is, I'm glad for that, I guess. Mm. Right. Yeah. Is that like, I don't know. I think with young parents, the young kids right now, regardless of how privileged they are, you know, I'm like extremely privileged person, but I don't know, people who I know who are in the same way, like the word, everyone feels a great deal of uncertainty around their child that um, I don't think we would have felt 15 years ago, you know, or 10 years ago. Uh, and that is probably the most activating thing, right? Because people care about their kids and um, people just don't assume, I think, in the same ways that maybe we did, although three of us are immigrant. Um, yeah, I don't think it's, it's exactly the same yeah, when, your yeah, when your parents right. are like, <laughs> but that, that they, uh, <laughs> they kind of were just like, well, things will, <laughs> things will get better. Progress will be inevitable, you yeah. know? And like, I don't know. I don't think anyone necessarily feels that way except for like a few very happy people. Okay. Um, let's, uh, I think that's about, I think that's about all the time we have. Is that okay, Gia? Is there anything else you want to say? No, not at all. It's good to see you guys. Yeah. It's yeah. so good to be with you. Yeah. Thank you for your stories. They were really important. What are you do? What are you reporting? Well, we can you, ask, ask you off um, mic. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to our show. Um, this week, I want to point out that we have a book club for our subscribers on Thursday, August 25th at 8 o'clock Eastern, where we'll be talking about the novel Activities of Daily Living with the author Lisa Shao Chen. And you can get access to all of this if you sign up to our Substack or Patreon. Um, and you can join our Discord at that point. Uh, the Substack is goodbye.substack.com. The Patreon is well, you can just search for time to say goodbye. You know, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a patron. I know, oh, loyal I know. patron. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, I have um, your newsletter. Is that not part of it? Do I have to subscribe again? No, we don't have like it's just the same thing. Oh gosh, gotcha. you'll just be totally. Email. Fine. Okay, cool. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you. For, thanks for coming on, Gia, and uh, we will Thanks talk to everybody me. next week. Thank you.